Greetings and welcome to the God Speaks podcast. My name is Billy Cappage. And I'm Ricky Gidamel, and we both serve as catalysts for orality with the Lausanne movement. We want to welcome you to an ongoing conversation on orality, discipleship, and missions. We're excited to introduce to you a God who loves to communicate, who's been telling his story through rich media since before creation. This multimodal communication is recorded in his word and best embodied and exemplified through the living word, his son, Jesus Christ. And so because we are humans and made in his image, we believe that we were made to go and do likewise, to communicate with him and with others. Building on that foundation, we want to explore how we can reprioritize communication, specifically oral communication, as a vital category within the church's understanding of missions as we seek to communicate the gospel to the world around us, drawing from God's example. Each episode will be inviting different seasoned orality gurus and practitioners to help us along the way. This conversation is impacting our lives, our families, and our work. And we're excited that you're joining us as together we can reaffirm that our God speaks. Well, welcome everyone. And to those who are joining and those who are catching up with us afterwards, uh, we have a real treat today um, joining with us. And um, Rose Anog Madinger will be um, leading our time. Uh, it's just a real privilege to to introduce you, Rose. We've um, known Rose for quite a few years now through the International Reality Network and through all her work with ethno arts across in um, in SIL, and now is um, leading the International oh, Institute of Orality Strategies um, together with uh, Dr. Mattinger as well. And really, just uh, every time I've spent time with you, Rose, your input and insight into um, ethno arts, into really understanding and and speaking the stories of Jesus through the lens of culture um, has just been such an inspiration and and you have so much uh, to share. So we're delighted to have you with us and uh, are just looking forward to this time. So um, let's just before we get going, let's uh, pray and uh, commit this time to Jesus. So Father God, we, we thank you for this opportunity. Thank you that we can gather from uh, the furthest east to the furthest west. Um, thank you that you've prepared uh, Rose for this and that she really has so much to, to share with us. So we just pray this time will be fruitful. And we we ask that you uh, you bring out what you would about uh, telling your stories um, through Rose. And we just commit this conversation to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Ricky, for the introduction, and thank you for pronouncing my name so correctly. So that's so cool. Um, good evening, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, greeting you from uh, Paranaque, Philippines. Um, I see so many friends from uh, the Philippines and from the U.S. too. Hello. Welcome. Okay, so let's start, and let's see if I can share the screen. I hope this uh, session would be a bit interactive. Can you see my slide only now? That's yes? perfect. All right, thank you. 
Okay, let's start. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. That's in Luke 3, 23. The Gospels mostly recount what Jesus did after this verse. We read about Jesus' teachings, miracles, stories, his life, his death, his resurrection. The scriptures give us room to imagine what might have happened, what Jesus did, what he experienced before his public ministry. What do you think? What are some things you're imagining? So maybe some of you could unmute your microphone. Like, what do you think? It's not written in scriptures, so we will not um, say if it's right or wrong because we won't know. But like, what are some intelligent guesses or things that you're imagining that Jesus could have experienced? Don't be shy. I was thinking as a 30-year-old male, maybe he experienced pressure to get married from the community. Okay. Pressure to get married, yes. How about before that? Before he turned 30? I was wondering about being busy in the workshop. If he was helping, if his father was a carpenter, if he was involved in work of some kind. That's right, yes. Being an honorable son, family member. That's right. Yes. Yes. Anyone else? Okay, maybe later you'll have some more ideas. For me, I'm imagining the scenery and the colors that he saw, the dances he danced during weddings, the songs he listened to and sang, the games he played, maybe the fields he ran on with his childhood friends, the poetry and proverbs he heard the food he ate and he requested from his mom to cook. Yes, the carpentry projects that he undertook with his earthly father, the sand he walked on, the beach, the fig trees and the palm trees and the sycamore trees he might have climbed, the grapes and bread he might have eaten and the wine he drank, the Passover lamb, the feast that he partook with his family year after year, the scriptures he heard, he learned and memorized as a young man. So many things the Lord Jesus must have immersed himself in, listened to, and learned from. The stories from the elders and cultural religious experts and community members, you know, the latest gossip maybe from the community. Everything he immersed in before he could share his first story and perform his first miracle. The arts have been um, this way for me, a way to listen to people's stories, to get a glimpse of their heart, to know them a little bit more deeply. This is directly through their traditional art forms or through newly created ones, and indirectly through ethno arts workshops, where not only do we outsiders get to experience their creative cultural expressions, but also spend time with them, eat with them, listen to their jokes and stories, and hear about their joys and struggles. I have a friend here who's joining the call, Marge. She's an artist, and I get to know a little bit of her heart just by looking at her painting and somehow feel a little bit of the pain and whatever she might have been going through while she was working on her art. 
The Blaan are an indigenous community living in the western part of Mindanao, southern Philippines. We were invited to facilitate an ethno arts workshop with them. During the workshop, they drew and showed their different art forms. Uh, they, the ladies danced, another played the two-string lute, and many of them came in their traditional attire. One proudly shared the head accessory, the picture on the right. The accessory uh, that she wore was the same one, uh, our beauty queen who won the Miss Universe many years ago. She was so proud to say, ah, this is what she wore when she won. They realized how much they could be grateful for, how rich they were as a people that they could use their language, their musical instruments, their chance to communicate God's word and to bless others. One of the young pastors there prayed that if we were just bringing another teaching, that we should not arrive. She said she was leery of people coming to their place. You see, their community has been divided by the Muslims and the Visayan Christians who won people to their side and forced the Blaan to fight amongst themselves against each other. She said she was happy that we came because we did not try to teach as much, but to encourage and to affirm them. This is uh, Pastor Simban chanting the story of Jonah in their traditional Malam style. I hope this will play. <laughs> The people said they now understand the consequence of disobedience because I saw their faces light up. They understood the message, the language, and the fam familiar chanting form through which the message came. Pastor Bagon, an elder pastor, said after the workshop, I no longer need to be ashamed of being a blaan. If a pastor, a leader of his community, still has insecurities, about his identity, how much more the rest of his congregation. Rediscovering their cultural expressions, encouraged to use their language, and being affirmed of who they are in Christ paved the way for the truth of the scriptures to be more real to them. At the EMS conference last year, uh, some of you were there, I shared about the Aitas. The Aitas are another indigenous people from the Philippines. They were the first inhabitants of our country. They are nomadic. They have curly, kinky hair and have darker skin color than the dominant Malay of the country. Like many indigenous peoples, the Aitas have been ridiculed, marginalized because they look different. They live differently from the rest. When I was a child, I remember how our elders would scold us if we came home dirty or smelly and they would say you're like an Aita or don't be like an Aita they would say this is a song one of their youth members wrote expressing their pain and their faith
I love to tell the story of Gibbs, a matigsalog from Southern Philippines. The following is taken from a devotion I was privileged to share at an SIL conference last year. I have adapted it for tonight's event. The Matigsalug have the Bible in their language, and Gibbs goes to a Christian church. He's the young man on the left. His mother is a follower of Jesus. Gibbs had complained to God, Why did you have to make me a Matigsalug, one of the tribes? Why not an American or a Korean? Many indigenous young people like Gibbs are ashamed of who they are, ridiculed because they are different or are poor or speak funny to the ears of others. This has brought deep shame and silence. During our workshop, this is what he drew. He drew half of his attire only to represent how little he knew about their tribe and how ashamed he was of his cultural identity. But the faces of Gibbs and those with him lighted up with hope when they discovered that their language, their musical instruments, their bracelets, their baskets, their songs and dances, things close to their heart mattered to God because they themselves mattered to God. God not only speaks through their written or spoken language, he also gave them many other creative forms they could communicate to him with. And he understands them all. God's love becomes more real, his word more alive. This is Jennifer Gibbs' friend. She testified after the workshop too. He said, she said, we learned that we can use our two-string lute and bamboo zither in the church. We can use them to praise God. The tribes who are praising God will not be complete if the matigsalug are not there. At the end uh, of his reflection, this is what Gibbs drew now. He drew a complete matigsalog attire. He says, it's like the Lord let me realize that he's very much interested in the culture of the tribes because he loves me. He loves each culture. Most of all, he loves me. During the closing ceremony, Gibbs was one of the interpreters uh, for the uh, graduation. I asked him about the beautiful headdress that he wore that you can see in the photo. He said, oh, tell me about this. He said, it's so pretty. And then he said, he feels actually embarrassed to wear it. He borrowed it because uh, only men who have exploits, who have achieved a lot in life, are able to wear this kind of a headdress. But he said he's wearing it as a symbol that he is now embracing what he feels is his call from the Lord to be a leader of his tribe someday. I remember what God promised Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses was running away from God's call. The Lord said, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. If you will notice the word you has a footnote mark, the footnote says the Hebrew is plural. The International Children's Bible translates it this way. This will be the proof that I am sending you. You will lead the people out of Egypt. Then all of you will worship me on this mountain. 
Moses, God's messenger, will honor God on the mountain, not by his lonesome self, but together with the people he was sent to serve. When finally they worshiped together on the mountain, that was the evidence that God had sent him. Who will worship God? The messenger and the hearers of the message, both. Maybe that is how it could be with us, how it should be with us, that we, God's messengers, bearers of God's story and stories, don't just settle with delivering the message, but we wait till we hear also from those we have shared their own stories, their own testimonies, their songs, their dances, celebrating what God has done and is doing in their lives, that we, together with them, may worship God as one. Who else might need, might we need to worship with? Whose voices in worship has God not heard yet? Whose gongs and drums, whose creative movement, and whose colorful attire and weaving have we not yet seen brought forward as an act of worship? For a thousand languages, a thousand colors, a thousand sounds, a thousand musical instruments cannot begin to declare the greatness of our God. More than once, I heard people say, orality? Oh, that's about Bible storying, right? There is a notion that orality is about one person sharing Bible stories to evangelize others or disciple believers. For me, orality is not just about stories, nor about arts. It's about being one with and learning from those whose expressions, form of understanding and communication are not limited to the written text, but go beyond to color and movement and scent and sound and taste. Does this apply only to indigenous peoples? What do you think? Maybe later during the Q&A, you can share stories of how you have gained greater insights, how you were enriched, how your understanding, your capacity for empathy has become larger because you listen to people's stories and to the different ways, artistic ways they communicate. I asked Bohr, Gibbs' cousin who also attended the Ethno Arts Workshop, if he were to compose a song for the wider audience, what message would he give? He, his answer was that we too, they, Bar, are people just like everyone else. That if people eat, they too eat. Being a student now of indigenous studies, I get to meet more people to learn from, new ideas to process, and more stories to listen to. Many of these stories, unfortunately, are sadder, more heart-wrenching. One in particular has made me cry more than once. And I'm asking God for his purposes why I'm in this program. Let me share to you the story. This is the Boracay Island, a tourist destination in the Philippines, famous for its white and powdery sand beaches. There are many businesses here, both local and foreign. Unknown to many, this island has been the home for many years of an indigenous community called Ati 
They have similar features to the Aita I mentioned earlier. The Ati are also nomadic. They freely roamed the island, which provided for their food and livelihood. Uh, Dr. Baleva, in her dissertation, she writes, the Aita substantiate their claim to the land through their oral history, the testimony of their elders and leaders. They trace their genealogy and their ability to identify traditional burial grounds, sacred spaces, landmarks, hunting and fishing areas, and former settlement on the islands. They could identify all of this from memory. By Philippine laws, the land where indigenous peoples have lived for many generations is their ancestral domain. It cannot be sold, it cannot be bought. But in the Philippines, like in many places, there are many unscrupulous individuals and groups who could and would circumvent the law for their own selfish purposes, no matter who gets hurt in the process. The Ati fought for their land, their home. They waited for empty promises of the government and private corporations. Though the law was on their side, money and power and greed was on the other. They waited for 15 years before they acquired the documents that said a much smaller portion of the island was theirs to claim and live in. You would think that's the end of the story. Six months into their settlement, there were armed men who contested that the area the Ati was, were claiming as theirs really belonged to a hotel chain, and that this hotel chain had plans to build a tourist facility with villas and a yacht club and snorkeling and diving access. Negotiations ensued, but the Ati's uh, bamboo fences were demolished. The Ati could not do so much because they were up against armed men. Two months after, their young community leader named Dexter, who was only 26 years old, was gunned down after coming home from a meeting with a religious organization that was helping the community. Let me read further what Dr. Baleva said in her dissertation. While Dexter's death brought immense grief, uncertainty and fear to the community, it also galvanized their resolve to unite. The Atis have built houses for their families, a chapel, an office, a library, and a school building, which they call Ati Learning Center. With help from donors, the Ati constructed a living heritage center, a small museum that is open to the public and it contains exhibits on their culture, and tradition. The tragedy, the tragedy also brought struggles of the Ati in the spotlight, affording them more attention and assistance from the government, including the establishment of a police outpost in the Ati village. In the midst of this struggle, the Ati show what is close to their heart, their land, their culture, their traditions where their valuable stories from their forefathers are embedded.
when I was reading this story, I, I was crying and then I cried again the next day while we were praying and I cried again. Earlier this morning, preparing for this, I said, Lord, I don't know what you have in mind, why uh, you are touching me this way, because I don't know these people. I stand here before you, not because I'm an expert. I stand here because of the stories of many people who we call oral learners. Many of the principles in orality and Bible storying were called from people like the Aita, the Batigsalug, the Ati. They're not illiterate. They're not less intelligent. They are not less than who we are. They are precious, as precious in God's sight. However, they have been marginalized and exploited and ignored. In fact, the Philippine Council for Evangelical Churches, it has a peace commission for the Muslims, but it still has to have one for the indigenous peoples of the country. But we're glad that every month there's a prayer meeting, the whole country, for indigenous peoples as well. The indigenous peoples have blessed me more than I have blessed them. I am honored to share their stories that have opened doors for me to inspire many more and to challenge maybe a few more. Postscript. So how are Gibbs and Bohr now? Gibbs and Bohr are now going to places where I cannot travel, sharing what they have learned, encouraging fellow indigenous young people, and that they, that they don't have to be ashamed or to look down on themselves or others like them that they are rich and that they are precious and loved by God, their creator. This photo, um, uh, they're sharing um, to Muslim uh, uh, participants of the workshop. We cannot share so much because of language barriers, but uh, Gibbs and Bohr, the Lord used them to be able to share their own testimony to the people of Mindanao. In fact, they were invited to share in a radio program uh, after this event. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I'd love to hear from you, your comments, questions. Um, yes, any, uh, anything that um, you know, would add to this. So thank you. Well, thank you, Rose. What a rich time. And uh, uh, those your stories have uh, certainly inspired um, so much. Um, before we open up to any questions, um, Billy, did, did you have any reflections that you wanted to uh, wanted to share? No, I just, um, Rose, thank you so much for sharing with us and kind of, I appreciate, um, I appreciate your, the, in some ways, kind of broadening our understanding of orality. I, you had a line there. It's not just about Bible storytelling and it's not just about, um, expression limited to the written word or even the spoken word. 
but it's colors, it's patterns, it's it's body movements. It's like all of these things, kind of this embodied expression um, that that falls falls within orality and oral communication, but we don't seem to value or don't seem to know how to appreciate um, well enough, well, ever. Um, and I, I just was struck again by the stories of people and the way that the artistic, when people tell their stories, when when you give them the opportunity to bring their kind of an artistic element to it. I remember Ricky and I had the chance to be in Jakarta some years ago together with a bunch of younger leaders. And part of the, one of the exercises at the conference was we were in small groups and you were supposed to share a map of your life in picture. And it could be one picture, it could be many pictures. And uh, it was fascinating to see how people put, some people it was very, you know, very basic, but it was amazing. Some people had woven, some people had painted, some people had, you know, made these kind of incredible mosaics of their life. And whether whether it was uh, incredibly artistic per se, as in like the skill level was high, or it was very basic, there was something about not just telling the story, but actually having a visual something to show to the group that by the end, it's one of the most intimate forms of fellowship I've ever experienced with complete strangers, but they were telling, they were telling their story and they were, they were doing it using visual imagery. And, uh, and I, I just, I thought, oh, that's what, that's what came to my mind as I was listening, Rosh, and thinking you're tapping into something that is at the very heart of who we are. And uh, we talked about this just recently. I think you can make an argument that Genesis 1 and 2, the, the story of all of creation, the story of all of Scripture begins with an art exhibit in, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, which I think is what you're tapping into. And, and we're talking about cultures all over the world, particularly indigenous peoples. But, but I think if we were honest, Roche, I think it has a much broader application. We're made in the image of a creative God. So it just disturbed my heart. And I appreciate you kind of taking it out of the abstract and, and giving us names like Gibbs and Bohr, which I thank you. That helps us. So I'm curious, we and I, Ricky, if I may, I'm curious, Tom is, I know it's early on your end of the of the screen, but did well, did anything else jump out to you? You've been with us through a lot of these episodes and and you know Rochelle. Anything that stood out to you, and then we can open it up for the others. Oh, you're muted, Tom. Ah, Marami Salamat Rose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, those pictures brought so much back to mind from the Ifogal people. We worked in the central Luzon there, and um the headdress the and the even the colors of red are very dominant in many of the um, the art forms that they have and within their their uh, <clears throat> their loincloths or their their uh, skirts. And one of the things that the Ifugao had, and they had different levels of skirts that you could wear depending on where you were socially, and that's no longer true. And so people wear you know, there's kind of one that's kind of like the dominant one now that everybody wears, but it was socially distinct at that one point in their history, where if you reach this certain level in the sacrificial system, 
then you could move to wearing this skirt and that's the broadcasting to everybody. Here's where I am in the level of society, Ifogao society. And I, I love the way you bring that out to contrast that with how we're so limited in just orality is the spoken or the written word and with the, the difference between that and the, the spoken word and so forth to get into the colors, to get into the movements, to get into all those symbols, um, because all those symbols on those skirts and on those loincloths were communicating uh, much to the Ifugao people. So I love that that it, that um, comparison and to get us away from just, it's only this, we have forgot. From the Protestant side, clear back to the Reformation, basically we've kind of just jettisoned the whole thing of the, of the, um, uh, art forms and that kind of stuff and artwork that's you know gets into idolatry and the rest of it i think in the protestant side we've got a lot to learn about that and so thank you for helping us thank you dr Tao. thank you billy too anyone else have questions thoughts what's stirring in your heart as you as you hear Roche share. And feel free to speak them out or, or put them in the in the chat. Um, Rose, I did have a question that was kind of has been raising on my mind and uh, Tom alluded to it. Um, I know that when I've spoken to people about arts and orality and you know using culture, one of the biggest fears that comes back is where arts or particular artistic forms have been used in idolatry and in those kinds of, uh, you know, in, in practices that in people's minds are sort of against God or, or go against God's word. How have you um, navigated that really, um, you know, in, in the process to help those who might have had, you know, as a reaction, kind of run away from the cultural forms. How do you, how have you navigated that to help them come back to valuing the forms without obviously um, adopting the, the practices that are, um, you know, they shouldn't be. Thank you for that. That has, uh, that's a common question and common concern. Um, I think uh, first, the community have to be the one to decide on uh, what it is they want to continue using or uh, letting go. But it also comes after much study of scripture. Um, so we, we want to see what the scripture says or does not say about particular forms of expression. And then... Uh, and sometimes through the generations, the meanings have also changed, have evolved. Um, there's this uh, story of uh, uh, an attire, and uh, there was this one yellow feather that the meaning was uh, idolatry. And so they took the entire attire, they just took that one feather out, the yellow feather. Because for them, it meant something that they could not you know, wear uh, when, they were, when they became Christians. So, yes, I think it would take a lot of study of scripture together, discussing and um, coming together, praying. And yes, and then as an outsider, you just facilitate and ask, 
hopefully wise questions to let them think um, because they they know the meaning and uh, you can on, only advise so far um, but yes and sometimes fasting is needed because <laughs> it's a spiritual warfare um, so yeah because it's not easy I hope I answered that question. It's a bit general. <laughs> no, no, that's it's a, it's a great answer. And actually, the picture of the yellow feather is wonderful because when you think about the richness of communication, sometimes it's only just the small thing that's that's off. And actually, you know, compared to all the richness of what God's given us, so that that's a that's a really helpful picture. Thank you. And and we've also been accused before. Uh, somebody said, the missionaries who came before you, they said. We cannot use this. Now you're telling us we can. So what's the real deal? <laughs> so uh, who do we listen to? Um, so and one of our colleagues, an American uh, colleague, had to apologize. Said that we're sorry for you know people who um, said these things before, but that's how they understood the truth. And so now we're um, you know learning from scripture. Um, learning from each other. But even if we say these things, they, the community still has to decide which ones they can, they can use for worship, for school, for community. Yeah. Thank you. Can I ask our Filipino, Filipinas also, how have you felt marginalized by the suppression um of your own art forms by bringing in outside uh expressions how, how have when have you felt that what has it been like for you maybe i can answer uh some the first time i heard our instruments in worship our local instruments something just stirred in my heart i said that's us it, it just felt that way. And then when I, when we in, um, in a community in the South, in Mindanao, when they heard their log instruments being played in church, they said, oh, that sounds so beautiful. I didn't know we could use that in church. So I think we don't know what we're missing until we see what we can have. So I think that's one. I see Jayanti. Her yeah. mic is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm from India, so uh, this question is very much applies to us. We have different cultures, different language groups and art forms. Um, this session has been really uh, impactful uh, for a country like India and the missions here as well. Um, definitely hearing the word or uh, the gospel in our language um, is different. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in India, but I, I come from a, a bilingual home speaking English and going to an English school and uh, going to an English speaking church. But a few years ago, it was a aha moment for me. I lived internationally. I lived outside India in the West in Singapore and traveled quite a bit because of my career. But my aha moment came when I moved back to India a couple of years ago and I st started working with, uh, with my people here. I couldn't pray in the local language. It was a, such a shame. <laughs> My own native la language, I, I needed an interpreter. Uh, so that's when uh, God opened my eyes to um, 
learn more about my people, different cultures and ministering to them in their language, my language. Um, my uh, experience has been, it's very personal. It's very personal. You know, when I read uh, uh, something in my own language or something in, in the art form, uh, expressed in the art form of uh, India, uh, it's very personal. And uh, often in India, uh, Christianity, uh, after colonization, probably, I guess, uh, has a lot of Western shades. Uh, we are often called uh, anti-nationals. <laughs> uh, we are a minority, 2.5% in 1.2 billion are Christians. So we are a minority of minorities because we are so much Westernized in our faith, in, in our worship forms and all. Often in, um, um, Christianity is seen as a Western religion and because of the colonial past, it is seen as something not belonging to us. And uh, uh, when I, I realized when we integrate the local uh, art forms uh, in the local languages and the local uh, cultures, when we present the gospel to them, uh, there is a kind of like, like the young man experience, like they are part of God's great redemption plan they are part of uh, the uh, redeemed uh, or or the, the, those are called uh, to be redeemed so it didn't feel like a foreign uh, faith some western faith but it felt like our faith i, I hope uh, this sharing helps thank you for that and thank you for being brave and speaking up we appreciate that um I'm I'm wondering just and I, there may be others so let this be ongoing. I'm wondering are there ways that you all have seen the arts be used not just with people that are already in the church or who would identify as Christians but where have you seen like indigenous art forms and expressions be used evangelistically to try and draw people to Jesus? In China, the, uh, the opera, the stage is popular. Almost any village, any city will have multiple Buddhist temples where on a regular basis, there is some theatric performance. At English Corner, when we would do a play of Christmas, non-Christians loved being Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, we would act out the Christmas story with a handful of actors and everybody, a group of 40 would participate and they would love it. They would just love it. That's neat. That's neat. Billy, one of the famous uh, missionaries of uh, Western Africa, uh, Ray Giles of Ethiopia, developed a presentation of the gospel using an ostrich feather it represented everything they valued and it's lost and all those kinds of things uh, and that permeated uh, two whole tribal groups in western ethiopia just by the use of this ostrich feather highly valued uh, to present the gospel with the meaning that those people ascribed to that one uh, beautiful thing god had given them Mm, that's good. That's good. Neat. Any other ones? I'm just curious, not just using arts 
in the church, but trying to use the arts outside of it. Any other ostrich ostrich feather stories? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I am pastor in Burkina Faso. Yeah. And we use, uh, my English is no good. No, it is. <laughs> speak, You're doing I well. Speak French, I speak French. Um, we use um, instrument, traditional instrument to worship in the church and also to do evangelism. And people come, uh, many, many people uh, love to uh, understand this because it's um, go directly in the heart. And uh, when the music uh, with the instrument, uh, traditional instrument, uh, when we play, um, they, they are um, enjoy, enjoy, um, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they want, they love it very much. And uh, what Ricky uh, asked, uh, we know as pastor uh, what instrument you can play in the church and what we cannot play. Uh, in my culture, there are some uh, instruments they use to uh, traditional uh, for idols. And uh, we pay attention sometimes and there are some kind of uh, uh, instrument we don't use. Mm. Sure. Thank you so much for sharing. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I, it's interesting, again, I think of the, the discretion and Roche, you mentioned it's for the community to decide. Can you say any more on that? Like. And part of me wants to control that and feels like, ooh, doesn't isn't that risky to let the community decide what what instruments are okay and which ones maybe aren't okay, when to take the feather out, when to leave the feather in, you know, if you can use an ostrich feather without kind of it becoming um, confused. Why did you, why do you emphasize that the community has to be at the heart of that? Shouldn't it be the church leaders or the missionaries? Uh, yes, because uh, they, they know best what the meaning is uh, and what it means for the rest of the community, what the repercussions would be for its use. And um, and at best, we're like guests, the, at least the outsider or the missionary. Um, and it's their culture after all as well. Um, sometimes it's sad because like, let's say we want them to use, for example, a particular art form that's dying and we want them to preserve it. And we see that nothing wrong with it because in scriptures, there's freedom in Christ. But if they're, well, one, they're not interested, or two, their consciences cannot allow it, for example, then we cannot force it to. So we have to act in love. Um, and they have to agree. They have to be united as a church, for example. So unity is important, not the art form. <laughs> so we still value that, yeah. 
That's good. That's good. You mentioned, Roche, um, whose voices has God not heard yet? And I that I love that line. And I'm just wondering, and this is for the group, how would you answer that question from where you are at today? Whose voices are you aware of that God has not yet heard? I, I just would love for us to name those voices, and I'd love to pray over them here when we come to the end. But uh, who would you say, how would you answer that question just as a group? How would we answer it? I love that, Billy. Thank you. A friend of mine works with the Amdo-speaking Tibetan people in the northern province, uh, northern section of the Sichuan province where as far as we know, there's a handful of believers with the debate about tradition and culture and dance and how much can the believers when they do become believers continue mixing with the tradition, the old tradition. And it's a big, big question. Mm. Ando speaking Tibetan. Excellent. That's good. Thank you. Another one. I don't know. Are there any in Burkina Faso? Is Burkina Faso fairly well reached, or do people have access to the gospel or not? Yes, they they have uh, access to gospel. Um, I I don't um, understand well the question. Sure. I I just was wondering who are the people that mm -hmm. God has not heard their voices yet. They haven't had an opportunity to respond to the gospel or to give worship to raise their voices to God in artistic expression. Who are those people on our hearts today? I think in the Philippines we have uh they have counted 14 more unreached people groups, and they're, most of them are Muslim people groups. I don't know the names, though. I'm sorry. Um, no, but okay. maybe we can uh, include the 14 unreached people groups. They're the poorest and uh, least reached, unreached, yes. That's great. That's good. Thank you. I was just thinking how sobering it is that you don't know what you don't know. And there are, there are the voices that haven't been heard, but also the voices that, that we haven't identified yet. Um, and the, the various communities, I know that, you know, through, through working with the deaf, for example, there's a whole number of languages that, you know, we, we, I think it's now 400 or so sign languages and that number is growing all the time just because more more communities are being discovered so it's a um yeah the it, it's a it's a sovereign pause for prayer um yeah it's a good word it's a good word hey ricky I just, yeah, I just see, or Roche, you want to read that of Marge, or you want yeah. to comment on that? Um, Marge writes, how arts can be used for the gospel. I think she was answering in a non-threatening threatening way. Uh, I'm 
I'm using arts in exhibitions, social media with a verse always attached to it as a description since my artworks are fruits of my quiet time with the Lord and sometimes a testimony behind it. It opens doors for the gospel to the hurting and the lost as we dig deeper beyond the initial, initial art presented. Yes. Marge, I, I wonder if... No, say that because I didn't mean to cut you off, Rose. Go ahead, go ahead. But I wonder if she's tapping into something that is so significant, and 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 I wish it, it may be another conversation, but there are multiple layers of meaning that the arts make possible. And you wonder if this is part of the genius of God in creation is it's like you can see kind of the initial mountains or sky or land or whatever, but then there's you add the colors and then you add the voices and the noises, but then there's these kind of layers of meaning that that it ends up being there's so much more than we initially see or hear. And I wonder if that's some of what Marge is tapping into is the artistic word, if I can use that expression, or the artistic voice allows for a a a richness and a multifaceted approach to meaning that sometimes the textual word doesn't always allow or even the spoken word um so it's it's expressive in a way that 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 at times we can't control as tightly as we want and yet that makes it so much more beautiful mm -hmm. uh, marge i think you're tapping into something so significant so Thank you for sharing. Billy, uh, if I might, uh, we have someone who's in the program here at uh, the Asia Graduate School of Theology who is going to develop what we are calling artistic theology. You've heard of narrative theology. What about artistic theology? It goes way beyond what text can do. Mm. And, you know, Ricky's... Uh, pointing us to the criticisms of people saying, well, artistic stuff can get into all sorts of heresy. Can print text not get into the same thing? <laughs> I think we've seen a little bit of that. So we need a whole theology built on artistic expression. And that's what they're going to do here in the Philippines. I'm, my hat goes off to incredible leaders over here. Mm. That's so good. I, I was reading something recently about theology and the and disabilities, and it was interesting. The, the the author was saying as he was commenting, as he said, "I want this to be a performing theology," <laughs> which I I hear that is I think what we're talking about is I think everything Roche has been introducing us to today, all of that is related to a performing theology, uh, and if I could say an oral artistic performing theology. Um, which I, I think it's interesting, you don't get any of this kind of separated out from the church. Everything, Roche, you've talked about has been in relationship to the church, which is exactly how it's supposed to be. So that's good. Ricky, any other thoughts or comments on your end? The um, What came to mind as you were... Um we were just looking at the layers um, captured in art. I mean, it, it really does 
it, it takes the the principle of the parable almost um, and expands it out uh, to multiple layers. You, know, you just think as Jesus told these stories, it was precisely that. It was, um, you know, there was a, a, a danger, you know, anybody could respond to anything. Uh, it was open to interpretation, but yet he he used it to to you know he used the multiple layers to um, to to teach to to share to disciple to to do all of those things and and yeah just thinking about the arts as a as another stage beyond that where you have the story but even more senses engaged um, it's uh, you know in in I guess in contrast to the um, the sobering thought of the voices that that haven't been heard. Um, you know, when I think about just how many different expressions, what can be, what can be done with them, and how they, what context they can be used in, I, I think it it combats that sober feeling with the hope, actually, um, and excitement of of the strength of the gospel, the power of God's word as communicated through creation and creativity in every in every one of its forms so um yeah that that does fill me with hope and excitement you know just just seeing some of those faces from the pictures you shared rose and the uh even just the, the those small video clips and um just capturing just that sense of your joy even as you've watched these uh various groups uh, engage with their arts I, I think that does fill us with hope um and inspire us just to see what 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 the Lord can do as we listen to other communities. So, yeah. Okay, one more quick thought before we pray. I, I can't help but wonder if there are some of us on the call today that, um, if we were honest, there is an artistic part of our own heart that God would love to hear us worship him in, in some way. And it may not just be for those people or for the artistic types like Roche. I've been in Roche's home. She and Chuck welcomed me sometime back. And I was amazed by all the instruments that are there and, uh, and she can play them all. That's the amazing thing, um, <laughs> which is unbelievable. No, 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 I cannot. <laughs> well, I, I know you can play many of them. Um, but I, I maybe some of us aren't gifted in those kind of particular artistic ways or at the level that maybe Roche is or others. But I can't help but wonder if we have a whole conversation about the arts, is God stirring something in your heart or my heart? And is there some part of artistic expression in me that that I haven't, I've neglected? And it actually, one of the action steps that I could take as we get off the call today is to say, what would it look like for me this week to try and worship God, to give glory to Jesus in some small artistic way? However, however inadequate or immature in our abilities, I don't think we would tell anybody else God doesn't care about it. But I just wonder if God would stir some artistic expression in us. And if that might be a way we could worship him afresh this week. So, Ricky, do you want to, um, would you want to pray for our, we've got the Ondo Tibetans, 
those in Burkina Faso. I've got the 14 unreached groups in the Philippines. And then someone made a note of the Orthodox, our Orthodox Jews in Israel. Um, I just wondered if maybe it'd be appropriate for you. Would you feel comfortable praying over that group? Sure. Well, let's pray for let's let's close in prayer and bring bring these uh, various groups um, into into our prayer. Um, I'm I'm not gonna get all the names, but I'll the heart will be there. <laughs> well, Father God, we we thank you, thank you for this rich opportunity to to share and to hear from Rose and to share with each other. And, and Father, we do thank you for every tribe, every tongue, every people group that's represented. And Father, we do lift up the various groups that have been shared today, the, the various groups from the Philippines, the, the groups that have been shared about from Burkina Faso, the Orthodox Jews in Israel, and, and I'm sure there'll be many more represented um, amongst this group here but also beyond and from those uh listening afterwards so we we just lift them up to you and ask that their voices would be heard we ask that their art forms would be redeemed would be um used in worship and father we thank you for the the challenge that billy's brought us out uh, brought out to us right at the end of our time here just we ask you if there is anything creative or anything artistic um anything creative in different ways maybe not artistic any gift that you've given that we can use and as an expression of worship to your glory to sharing your name with those around us in um growing in our worship of you whatever it might be we ask that you would challenge us that you would that we would have the opportunity to step out we'd even have the unexpected gift of time to invest in it uh, whatever it might be, uh, we uh, we ask that we could we could learn to to worship you and tell your story in in different ways. Um, so, Father, we thank you uh, for the encouragements today. Thank you for um, just the joy of knowing that your word, your stories, can be shared in so many different ways, and really that it can bring you glory as different communities learn to express their stories in the way that you've given them and, and just them. Um, so we thank you, Jesus, and uh, we commit the rest of our weeks to you in your name. Amen. Amen.